are tuned to CFCR 90.5 FM. It's time for the nerdy news. It's Punch Radio, and in studio we have Brennan and Dave and Jody, and we will hear from Craig and Hank a little later. We are talking basically about four things today. Uh, it is brought to you by the letter F and the number one, because we are talking F1 a little later. Super pumped about that. Lots of facets. Craig has a brand new book that he is launched. Uh, and so him and uh, Hank will talk about that a little bit more. And uh, Hank wants to talk a little bit about uh, The Atom Project, which is the new Ryan Reynolds movie on mm. Netflix. But first, Brennan, we've been waiting for your review of The Batman. So please lead the show with your interpretation of this newest telling of The Batman tale. Okay, so at this point, by the time you hear this, it's already been, I think, a couple of weeks. It came out on the 4th, I believe. So there will be some spoilers, but you've had lots of time to watch the movie, so be warned. Now, unlike my last two episodes where I watched half a movie and then another half a movie, this time I watched Batman on opening night in the IMAX, so I got the big experience. And then I just watched it last night again so it was refreshed in my mind for this episode. So instead of watching two half movies, I watched a three-hour movie twice. So I spent six hours in Gotham City with the Batman. And so this is what uh, I, this is my take of it. When I first saw it, there are some things that I really bumped up against. And as we left the theater, I kind of made a few snide comments about this and about that. No, I didn't like this. This didn't work. So the second time going in, I was wondering if, that would happen again, or if it'd be better, or if it'd be worse, or how I'd feel about it. And it's amazing with the second view, some of those issues I had were actually kind of rectified. It's like one of those works of art, you know, when you make something, the longer you spend with it, the more you can see the details in it. And there were some things the first time really bothered me that bothered me way less. And there were other things that still kind of bothered me. So first, um, I want to start with, this is a beautiful looking movie has beautiful cinematography. The direction is amazing. There are incredible fight scenes. There's like lots of actions and, and things, but some of my favorite shots are just like the rooftop scene. So it's Batman talking with Catwoman or Jim Gordon on the rooftop. And this one is it's twilight and it's lit and it's beautiful. So we have these nice moments of a good action movie, a good drama movie between actors, and just like these nice sort of still shots that really create this world. And I think that's one thing this movie does really, really well is create a world for Batman. I was listening to Kevin Smith on his Fat Man Beyond podcast, and he re rephrased this tweet he came across that basically said, the Christopher Nolan Batman movies put Batman in the real world, whereas the Matt Reeves Batman made a world that was real for Batman. And that's what it feels like. It's, it seems very real to him. It's, it looks like our world, but it's just heightened enough that it's not reality but it's close enough you could almost imagine yourself being in there, okay? Even the vibe of the movie is, is a quite different. It has like a thriller sort of vibe. It's sort of like Seven meets Blade Runner with a little bit of a dash of Fight Club in there. And I'll explain the, the, the Seven thing, but it's very like thriller. If, if, the, if the action would have been a little more graphic, it could have easily become like a horror movie and got an R rating, which I'm glad they didn't do, but that was kind of the vibe they were going for. I love the look of all the costuming. Uh, Batman looks just like an Alex Ross painting. And at times I almost thought they must have got ideas from that outfit because that's what it looked like. I mean, it was more armory and platy, 
but just the way the, the cowl looked and things looked great. Uh, the Catwoman outfit was perfect. When I saw the first pictures, it's like a tube with big eyes cut out, which was kind of like their version of doing the goggles. I'm like, that's lame. But then I saw it in the movie and it worked really, really well. So like, ah, it's really cool. As every Batman movie, they throw in some new tech, which I super liked. Now, this is where the Blade Runner thing came in for me because he has this tech, but every time he's looking through a computer screen, it's always kind of blurry or like everything's kind of analog. Downtown Gotham has these huge uh, like billboard displays and lights, right? So very, very Blade Runner-esque. It's, it's nighttime a lot. It rains a lot. The Riddler, probably what he should have done is just kidnapped or stolen all the flu vaccines and he could have taken over Gotham because everyone must get the flu there. It's raining all the time, like heavy rain, not, not this drizzling stuff. For a three-hour movie, it didn't feel like it. It really goes by fast. And there are times you think, oh, the movie could end now and it keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going. And then when you're done, you look at your clock, it's like, oh, it's been three hours. Which being that I sat through it twice and I still didn't feel the three hours, that's a really impressive thing. What else can I say? I have so much to say. I even made notes and I hope I don't mess them up. Robert Pattinson does a great job as Batman. He's a great Batman. He really is. I know when he got first cast, there was a lot of naysayers. I think he's one of the best, to be totally honest. I wasn't a big fan of emo Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne is very, oh, everything sucks, but I hate my life kind of thing. More in the second viewing, you really realize that he doesn't want to be Bruce Wayne. Like he's trying to be Batman all the time. There's even kind of a funny scene where it's daylight and he's talking to Alfred in the kitchen, or not the kitchen, but like their big mansion, and they're having breakfast and the light comes in and he like puts on his sunglasses, you know, because he doesn't like the light. So when you think of him trying to always be Batman, it makes a lot more sense. So when they do the second one, which I'm sure they're going to, it'd be interesting to see how he does a more charming in the world Bruce Wayne, okay? Because right now he doesn't want to be Bruce Wayne. And the only times he goes out in public and people see him, they're like, oh, Bruce Wayne. And he slowly starts to see that maybe he can make more inroads if he uses both personalities. Zoe Kravitz is great as Catwoman. Colin Farrell as the Penguin, you would not know it's him. It's, he does an amazing job. His performance is great uh, with like, even without the makeup, his performance, you really don't know it's him. Here's the one thing about his performance though that really irked me and I tried to get over it and I can't. He is doing a brilliant Robert De Niro impersonation. Like it's phenomenal, it really is. You can almost see Robert De Niro being the penguin in that movie. And for some reason, it took me out a little bit just because it seems too Robert De Niro-ish. I almost feel bad for saying that because if he played it too much like Colin Farrell, I'd be like, eh, that was his Colin Farrell, right? Again, I would not have known it was him, but the fact it seems so much like an impersonation, it kind of irked me a little bit. At the very end, there's a little tag scene where uh, Barry Kogan, I think I'm saying that right, uh, he, was, he played uh, Druig in The Eternals. We have a shot of him talking to the Riddler, and we think he's the Joker. And at first, I'm like, is that John Travolta? So <laughs> we have these two actors that, in my mind, are almost like impersonating other actors being that character. I'm not sure if I'm reading that into it, but in both cases, that really sort of bugged me. That being said, the Penguin was great, but the Robert De Niro-esque of it just sort of bothered me a little bit. The Riddler, I did not like at all. That was probably my biggest turnoff of the whole movie. It's Paul Dano, right? Yeah. I just don't like what they did with the character. I don't mind when they take a character and they stretch it and they do different things with it. This was so much unlike a Riddler-type character that it, it kind of bugged me. It's very... 
again, it, the Thriller 7-esque part of it was all the Riddler stuff. It was really like serial killer, over the top. He had like this mask on. He looked more like KG, uh, KJ Beast or Kane or something, like with the kind of like, it's supposed to be like a combat mask, but it kind of had like this whole fetish thing. Um, and the Riddler came off as this, like this very fetishy kind of character. And I get it, he's obsessed with his whole plan, but every time he would have his like weird Saw-esque video moments, it just took me out. Now, I love Saw, don't get me wrong, but in a Batman movie, I didn't like it as much. It just, it, it rubbed me the wrong way. Was it because it was so over the top? I'm not sure. And it wasn't that the performance was bad, because it's not. He does a brilliant job. They all do great jobs. It's just that was a choice that I wasn't a big fan of. My only other big, big, big quirk is the amount of whispering dialogue in the movie. Even when Jim Gordon and Batman are by themselves, they're whispering all the time. No one else is there. Why are you whispering? Like, if Batman is whispering, fine, I get it. But why is Jim Gordon whispering all the time? There's a lot of just like whispering back and forth and back and forth, which I never quite understood. And another little plot hole, there's, uh, again, spoiler, Batman helps, he tries to defuse a bomb instead it goes off. He gets knocked out and there's a police rifle put in his face in City Hall. And then he wakes up in the police station. And that's the first time someone tries to take his mask off and then he wakes up. So somehow he got up from City Hall to the police station and no one bothered to take his mask off or even look. So either that means the EMTs that took him there are just better people than the cops or no one thought to check. So they wait till he's full of cops and then they finally, and then they keep trying to grab his mask, right? It, it, that's a picky point. The effect in theater is awesome. Like it really works well. But when you think about it later, well, how would he get to the police station without anybody taking his mask off? I know that's all picky stuff, but besides that, I watched it twice. I wasn't bored either time, even when I knew stuff was what was going to happen. Um, and it's a really good show. Where I'd place it in the pantheon of all the Batman movies, it's hard to say because there's so many of them. But it's a really great watch. Cinematography is great. It's great overall. But don't forget to check out Batman Mask of the Phantasm because that's still my favorite one. So there you go. I think I think I covered most of the main points. Excellent. Well, you've encouraged me to get off my duff and go and see it. And uh, because we have two reviews now, you will not hear my take on the Batman. But I will get around to seeing that. So that's awesome. Okay, we're going to throw things over to Hank and Craig. They are going to talk about uh, the Adam Project and Craig's new book, Nothing You Do Matters. So take it away, fellas. Hey, everybody. It's Punch Radio on CFCR 90.5 FM. I am, well, one of the co-hosts, I guess, Craig Silliphant, and I'm joined, as always, by my good-looking and literate friend, Hank Cruz. Hank, how you doing? Um, th thanks for saying I'm literate. That's very nice. Well, I feel I like it, we're going to go somewhere with that, but I know there's some yeah. stuff you wanted to talk about first, so what... Oh. Uh, I actually, I, uh, hi, yeah, I want to talk about a, uh, a Netflix movie that I just watched and then a book that I've been reading. Um, have you heard of The Adam Project? I have, and I've been, I haven't watched it yet, but I've been waiting to. I think it might be a good one to watch with my kids even. You, you should watch with uh, Jenny and the kids. Everybody's going to love it. Uh, so the uh, At Fisher Cruise review, which personally I think was amazing, uh, says that The Adam Project, a 12-year-old boy, living with his mom, Electra, walks into his deceased dad's detached garage to find Deadpool bleeding all over the floor. And once Deadpool reveals who he really is, the boy, who actually is named Adam, um, agrees to help him 
travel through time to find Hulk and Gamora so they can stop the evil Evelyn Deaver or Deaver from doing all these evil things all over the timeline. Why? Because all of these people are in every superhero movie now out there. So you're like, so, so all of a sudden we're watching it and then uh, like uh, my son's like, that's Hulk. And then my daughter's like, oh, that's Gamora. And that's, so now they just see the, the superhero characters in this movie. I'm like, oh man, right. yeah, the superheroes all over the place. It's actually, it's a really fun action-packed film. It's like time travel and like cool futuristic stuff. And it's, it's, it's really neat. And it is made for, families with younger kids too so i would say if you're about eight and up it, it would be a, it would be great so you should watch it Everybody yeah should. i'm te- definitely planning like, to check that one out and like who doesn't like a movie with ryan reynolds in it come on yeah i mean hard to go wrong come on uh, i don't um, mind his smug punchable face right yeah yeah and speaking of books i started reading this new book called nothing you do matters right because i thought the title was pretty catchy and I was like, you know what? Every day I wake up and I go, I kind of feel like that thing I do matters. But it's written by this guy, uh, you. You wrote a book. That is true, yes. There are 12 in here, 12 short stories that cover a, a lot of topics, uh, one of which I thoroughly enjoyed uh, going to uh, Jumbo Video. Yes. Um, which, uh, when I moved to Saskatoon, uh, was right around, I think, the peak time of the Jumbo Video and walking around there and getting the popcorn and cruising around and anywho enough about uh, me nothing you do matters where number one where did the title come from uh well the title comes from the idea of nihilistic optimism which is basically like the universe is a you know a massive infinite place time is a really long thing and we're just these like little blips of in existence that blink in and out of existence you know and we don't matter at all to to the grand scope of the cosmos so that idea can terrify you or i think it can set you free i mean you know does that girl that broke up with you in high school or that 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 thing that went wrong at work uh, a couple of weeks ago you know does that really matter in the grand scope of the universe or should you focus your energies on you know who you are and who you want to be and the world you want to explore and the people you love and you know when i say set you free that doesn't give you license to you know murder and do bad things to people uh, it just means like you know you can choose what you want to focus on uh you know in terms of having a happy life so it's actually sounds very pessimistic but it's quite optimistic so we shouldn't be living every day like the purge well no i'll say no okay phew so out of the 12 stories i guess the question would be they're all kind of covering a few different topics but a few similar themes going through the whole thing but did you write them all like back to back? Did you have some of these ideas over the last several years that you finally had a chance to put together? How, how did you choose which stories to go into the collection? Yeah, so I probably about two years ago decided like, hey, uh, you know, I'm established enough uh, as a writer. I don't necessarily have to chase around all this freelance stuff anymore. And I used to write a lot of fiction before I, you know, uh, just got so busy with work and freelance and everything. And so I wanted to go back to that thing that I love doing, you know, writing those stories. And so about two years ago, I said, you know, I'm just going to start writing some stories to see if I even still have that muscle. And, you know, whether I like these stories or not, I'll just keep writing until I feel like I have enough. Uh, And I probably had about, you know, 15, 16 stories. And some of them, yep, were ideas that I probably even had as a teenager, or uh, one of them even was an excerpt from a a novel I'd been writing previously. And 
in the end, I sort of settled on 12 stories. Some of them I just didn't feel were good enough for the book. Uh, so they weren't written in any particular order. Uh, they were sort of placed in the book in the order that I thought would be like, you know, you get a couple of funny stories, then you get a darker story, then you get some funny ones. So rather than, you know, I wanted to make it like a good mixtape almost. And with all of the stories and the characters that are in there, are many of them based on real people and real experiences or... You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. No, I would say uh, yes. Like, are some people going to be reading this and go, "Oh, that's me"? Yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe. Like, I mean, there's there's definitely uh, a few stories that are pretty fantastical, but there's a few that you know any writer's bases things on you know things from their real life, right? Which you know, uh, and so some of those stories are just like you know it might be complete fiction except for one little anecdote about how a guy drinks his coffee or something that you know was peeled from real life. But some of them are uh, you know ripped right from the headlines. You know, there's one really darker story that's uh, it's fictionalized, but it's sort of ripped from the headlines. Uh, and then there's uh, other stories like uh, there's one about a trip to Mexico that my wife and I took. Uh, <laughs> there's another one about a Let's just say it's a very crass story, but it's about a guy I caught doing something in a mall that was disgusting and, and, and illegal. Uh, that story actually happened pretty much like, you know, again, I fictionalized some of the details, but like that story happened almost exactly as I told it really. So yeah, some of them were very fantastical and, and other ones were uh, pulled right from like real things. Like I know the one uh, where uh, it's from the perspective of God there. Um, I'm sure that, that one isn't based on a true story, but unless <laughs> you think you're God. But the, uh, uh, what about the, the story, even the, like the jumbo video one, what involves a, 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 a VCR and some other premium things getting stolen? Did that really happen? Yes, that really happened. Now, a lot of the story is fictionalized, uh, even some of the characters are, but uh, that definitely that happened to a friend of mine where they went to a funeral and they used to in the paper print like who the pallbearers were. So the criminals were able to look at the, the obituaries that day and see that like, oh, this guy is a pallbearer in a funeral from this hour to this hour. And so they found his address and went to his house and, and, and robbed it, basically. Uh, and then a few weeks later, that friend of mine ran into a guy, tried to sell him a VCR, and he realized this is my VCR, uh, just <laughs> in a parking lot at the mall. So uh, that's wow. the true story. The, you know, in, the, in the book, the details are similar, but like there's a lot of uh, you know, liberties I take, too, with the comedy. And, uh, and people that have grown up in Saskatoon um, will recognize many things in many uh, locations and, and things in the story but if you don't know Saskatoon it doesn't matter because uh, like you don't need to know these places right in order to uh, no for sure yeah you don't need story. to know them I would say about 80 percent of the story takes place in Saskatchewan Saskatoon even from like 1905 or so to now uh, props to Jeff O'Brien the city archivist who's always great helping with some of those uh, details and stuff like that uh, in the research but but yeah so where can people pick up this VIP premium book? <laughs> well, you can get it at uh, craigsillifant.com. Uh, if you know me really well, you can, you know, just shoot me a text and, and I'll, I'll bring you one, send me some cash, I'll bring you one. Uh, but if you want to buy it from a store, you can go to Turning the Tide uh, on Broadway in, uh, I think it's Maine there in Saskatoon, and uh, as well as McNally Robinson should have a few copies. You can buy it uh, online at Amazon as well, including the Kindle. Uh, obviously, I urge everybody to shop local, though. Of course, you got to shop local. And I did offer online already that anybody that wants to buy the book and really likes an audio version instead, because some people like those books, 
um, I'll come over and read it to you. So <laughs> yeah. it's not a big deal. I'll bring the book. You buy the book. I'll come over. I'll read it. You phone it's me fun. while you're trying to fall asleep and I'll, uh, I'll call you, uh, or I'll, I'll read it to you as you, as you fall into slumber. Right. It's like whatever you need to, to get this book, like Let's get it, it out there. But, uh, <laughs> I do, uh, love the book and uh all of the stories are great uh some did make me laugh and others uh some of the serious stuff did it really uh yeah there's stuff in there for everybody but yeah good job good thank you man yeah it's kind of a cross between nick hornby and chuck poleniak or something so really happy bright writing and then really dark uh, scary writing so uh, everybody that, go buy craig's book go, go buy, buy book. craig's book uh so that's all the time we have for today i'm going to throw back to jody here that's hank and i saying uh talk to you next week thank you and the book is awesome you can also get it at amazing stories we have copies there as two so it's a really fun read and lots of good saskatoon touches so well done, Craig. We are very proud of you. Okay, we're going to talk about F1. So at, at, we love racing, and we've talked about racing on the show quite a bit, and it's finally starting again. So this weekend is the first race in Bahrain, but like a few weeks ago, I was just getting too itchy. I was like, I can't wait, I can't wait, I can't wait, to the point that I went and I bought some F1 trading cards. So so nerdy. It's like, well, you know, there's only 20 drivers. Like, how many cars could there be to collect? It's like, ooh, I can get mechanics and the principles and some of the cars. The cars. Of yeah. Course. So that was kind of cool. And then, hey, finally, one week away, they're starting to do some testing, blah, blah, blah. blah, 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 blah. Netflix launches season four of Drive to Survive. They're like behind the scenes docudrama of the F1 world. And so we just binged that baby like in a few nights, watched the whole thing. Now, the last season, the 2021 season is rife with drama. It's perfect for a TV show. And so it takes you through all the ups and downs that the race between Mercedes and Red Bull, between, between the two top drivers. So Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton, it's just like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between the two teams for the Constructors' Cup and then also the Drivers' Cup. It's just back and forth, back and forth. So it's like, it's perfect for a drama and irritating. There were so many things that I had to relive over again watching the show that just like got under my skin. But now I am ready for this weekend. So as we speak, they are practicing tomorrow will be qualifying and then sunday will be the actual first we obviously liked drive to survive season four because we watched the whole thing in one weekend and it really is like reliving a season of f1 in about 10 40 to 50 minute episodes and the kind of access that netflix has been granted mm -hmm. to the paddock and the track and the post-race interviews and all that kind of stuff. There are certain races where we saw eight or nine different camera crews capturing different parts of that race at different times in the series. So I think F1 is one of the first sports to figure out that fans want this kind of access and obviously launching it right before their season starts is as much uh, a commercial marketing timing thing as it is you know something to like appease the viewers in the off season oh completely yeah no this was a big ask to launch it just a week before the season starts no doubt there's like no doubt in my mind that that was 
totally calculated. It, 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 but it's great. It's really fun to watch. Obviously, they can't include everyone. Like, yes, there's only 10 teams. There are only 20 drivers. So you would think some of them would get a little bit of time, but they definitely left some people out who were kind of like, yeah, okay, they didn't have a great season. There wasn't really that much. Um, they could have even heightened the drama more. There was more stuff going on that they could have added to the narrative, which they left out. But what they did include was really, really good. And I think overall, if there was someone who won the season, it has to be George Russell. They really painted him in a very favorable light, built up to his placement with the Mercedes team, and you're rooting for him kind of the, the whole way. Yeah, if they had spent as much time on Sergio Perez, um, he, he probably could have had that same standing in this series um, because they're both such unselfish drivers and such big team players. Um, but I guess, you know, since George Russell is a little younger and has, a, you know, a little bit more of a big shot future in the sport ahead of him, they probably made the choice to spend more time with him. And it wasn't, it wasn't a no, his arc is more interesting and he's very fresh faced and people want to know more about George and who this hot new driver is going to be driving for Mercedes in the new season. So I understand that choice. They definitely painted Nikki Sonoda as a bit of a spoiled brat who like completely is just unsafe and clueless. And, you know, we pick that up just watching the races because he makes a lot of mistakes. But the other like, okay, and this is, this is, actually very current so they talk about Nikita Mazepin who drives for Haas and he basically got his seat because his daddy had all the money and he bailed Haas out he's, he's this oligarch in Russia who is the fertilizer king okay so he bought his son's seat and actually like makes demands on the team all the time like you should change the car because my, my son can't drive it it's like no there's drivers for that. That's what they're paid to do. This kid is a disaster. You really just want him gone. And guess what? He's gone. Just last week, they gave him the boot. As part of the sanctions against Russia, he is out. Him and his daddy's money are out of F1. And as a result, Haas has picked up an old driver from a couple of years ago, Kevin Mas uh, Magnuson, will be taking his place. And I couldn't be happier about it. Yeah, what's what's Gunter's last name? Uh, Gunter Steiner. Yeah, they get right since season one of Drive to Survive, they've had a lot of access to Gunter Steiner. So it's kind of interesting that the, the bulk of the principal interviews they get are from the guy who is leading the last place team. And the team that's like, fighting just to finish the season, fighting just to stay involved, which is actually more interesting um, than listening to Toto Wolf or uh, Christian Horner talk about, you know, the battle to be number one. Um, Drive to Survive is actually kind of a fitting title because Mercedes and Red Bull aren't driving to survive. They're driving to win. Haas, Williams, Aston Martin, some of those other teams are literally trying to survive. Like they may not be a team. Like nope. All right. Well, that pretty much wraps up. I do want to mention one more uh, newsworthy item. And that is that Lewis Hamilton has just announced this week that he is going to add his mother's name to his name 
and drive under quote candles because he thinks it's weird that women have to give up their name when they get married and that his mother's family and legacy deserves as much recognition as his dad. So um, I can't pronounce it. So I will learn that on the weekend when we start watching racing again and uh, next week report what Lewis Hamilton's new name is going to be as he races to glory. Get in there, Lewis. Get in there, Lewis. All right, that wraps things up. You know where to find us every week here on CFCR 90.5 FM.